Amen. Amen. Who's excited to be in the house of the Lord this morning? If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask that you would turn with me to the book of Acts. Uh, The book of Acts in the New Testament. Uh, We are coming in these last couple of weeks to the end of uh, our series, Sent. I was telling the prayer team earlier today uh, that we, uh, when we get to the end, we'll have been in the book of Acts for six months. Amen. Um, The book of Acts has got so much for us, and today uh, is no different. How many of you in here uh, like to travel? Doesn't matter where, you you like to travel. Now, one one of the travel experiences that I aspire uh, to undertake within my lifetime involves exploring Europe. Now, you may be a little caught off guard, like, why would you want to go to Europe? They're super progressive. Uh, Their depravity is, you know, way advanced beyond, why would you want to go to Europe? Well, primarily due to my fascination with some of the early Christian giants that came out of Europe. And aside from that, I have a fascination uh, with old architecture. Anybody else here uh, have that same fascination or, or you at least enjoy? Particularly for me, it is the grandeur of old church buildings. I love to see them. Now, many of, I'm, I'm going to show you in just a moment, or I'm going to show you a couple of pictures. But many of these architectural marvels took several decades to build these churches. Even centuries for some to reach its completion. For instance, this very first picture here, and that may be recognizable to some of you, but this is St. Peter's Basilica. Uh, This is located in Italy, and and it is a testament to architectural brilliance. It required 120 years to build this church. Though I am not a follower of the Catholic faith, this is the house of the Pope. And I want to visit this building because of how it looks inside. Uh, Both Michelangelo and Donatello have works of art inside of this building. The next picture here, this is the York Minster Cathedral in the United Kingdom. And this took an astonishing 252 years to build this building. But remarkably, this last picture here, If you can see, there's actually a crane at the top of this church building. This is the Sagrada Familia located in Madrid, Spain. And this building started in the 1800s and it's not set to complete until the year 2030. It is still being built to this day. It is still being constructed. Now these these structures that we have seen here served as more than just physical spaces for religious activities. They, they function, those three buildings, and those are three of many. The, those three buildings, they functioned as a central hub for believers to gather and to worship and to engage in communal activities. Now, those churches at their time, they embodied the dedication of a community to spiritual pursuits. They embodied creating a foundation for outreach and for missions works. Those those buildings, each one was built while acknowledging that the mission of Christ has been fulfilled, all the while embracing the fact that the mission of the church remained unfinished. 
They were all built under that premise. They, they understood that the church is inherently a movement, not merely a physical space that you attend. But since their inception, all three of those specific locations and many others have in their own way slowly allowed their mission of the church to fall by the wayside. Gone. Completely. They've forgotten that this movement implied action. A commitment to going beyond the walls of the building. They forgot that missions and outreach were not mere components of the church, but they constitute the very essence and the primary purpose of why the church exists. And as, as we prepare for the launch of Mission Life Church, it becomes pivotal for us to reflect upon our role within this movement Are we actively contributing to the mission or are we merely participating in religious activities? I mean, understanding that the church is a movement is paramount. It's paramount to everything that we do, every decision that we make. It's a call to intentionally engage with our culture. It's a call to proclaim the transformative message that we find right here in this book that we so readily have access to. Church, I want to just say something to you this morning. That the purpose of the church, it extends far beyond impressive buildings. Way beyond. It extends far beyond well-organized programs. And dare I even say that the purpose of the church extends far beyond perfect budgets. And I struggled to even want those things to come out of my lips this morning. For those of you who know, I'm a numbers guy. I like when everything makes sense. I like when it all looks good and it all looks like it's all put together. But as we walked through this series for the last five months... Walking into our sixth month, as we walk through the rest of this series and towards mission life, we have to ask ourselves some really hard questions. Uh, Are you and I merely doing ministry? Just doing ministry? Uh, Are we merely just running a religious institution? Are, Are we just merely attending a church service? Or are we authentically a part of the movement? We not only have to ask ourselves those questions, but then we have to in turn answer them for ourselves as well. Because the church's purpose is fulfilled when you and I actively go. When we actually become the hands and the feet of Jesus. And so what does that profound truth look like in your life every single day? What does it look like in your coming and going? What does it look like outside of these four walls? And if you're sitting here and you're pondering, which I hope you are in this moment, pondering that truth, I want you to consider something this morning. I want you to consider that this last Five months of studying the book of Acts, and especially this month in December as we begin to wrap this up. I want you to consider that this is my personal invitation to you to be a part of that mission. 
This is an invitation for you to more than just attend services here at the church. This is an invitation for you to actively engage in the beautiful work that God is doing in us and then through us. Amen, church? I want to draw your attention to the screen because there's a passage of Scripture that I believe uh, we, we know, we've heard, uh, but we often miss the implications of it. Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus just a few chapters ago here in the book of Acts. And he was in Ephesus and he said these things to them, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. How many of you have heard that verse before? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, right? But oftentimes we quote those two verses and then we forget the most important verse in the set. And that's verse number 10. It says, for we are his workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God beforehand, he prepared them that we should walk in them. He prepared them already. And this significant declaration in Scripture provides us insight into God's post-salvation expectation for the believer, for the Christian. Something that you and I are supposed to partake in. And before I get there, I just want to share something with you. If you would, just leave that verse there for a moment. Verse number 10 says that we are his workmanship. And I just felt like I needed to share this this morning. I don't know where you're at. I don't, I don't know what you're walking through in this life. I don't know what pain. I don't know what sorrow. I, I, don't, I don't know what it is that's going on in your marriage or in your job or with your family. But I want you to know something this morning. Every single one of you is God's artistic creation. Every single one of you. And that word workmanship in the Greek comes from the word poema, which is where we get our English word poem. Poema. And and it emphasizes to us that you and I were deliberately crafted by God for a specific intention and purpose. Every single one of us. And not just that we were crafted, but that we were precisely created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now it's crucial for each one of us in here to note this morning that good works do not secure salvation. But, please don't miss this, Good works do not secure your salvation, but they undeniably manifest as a consequential fruit of that salvation. Meaning they come after to show that you truly are a a follower of God. And so God in his wisdom, he, he foresaw and determined our purpose in serving him. Every single one of us. I mean, he mapped out specific roles for you and I to fulfill in this life. And I also want to say this to you. Because I, and I tell people this often, I'm a recovering people pleaser. So I want you to also know this. There is no need. There's no need whatsoever for you to replicate the actions of another person. Amen? Because God has intricately designed a distinctive plan for each one of you. 
so that you and I could be instruments in the Redeemer's hands. And that plan, that plan encompasses more than just giftings that you and I have. It encompasses a a very guidance by the Holy Spirit that shapes your journey in your relationship with Jesus Christ. And so I want you note takers to please write this down. Inaction in this life is not just a missed opportunity. It's neglecting the calling that is engraved in your spiritual DNA. It's, It's neglecting the calling You know, Paul and the early church advanced the gospel at every turn despite every single challenge, despite every death, every pain that was inflicted upon them, they brought the gospel forth. And in Paul's case, specifically this morning, Paul is a prisoner again. And he's about to head to Rome soon. And he's about to face back-to-back-to-back trials over the next two years in front of judges that could condemn him to death. And during this period of time, he runs into a person, an individual, a couple really, that I'm going to call the procrastinators. The procrastinators in the text. So I want you to pick up with me in Acts chapter 24. We're going to start reading in verse number one. And he says, And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight most excellent Felix... Reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and in everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots amongst the Jews throughout the world, and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. Now, I want you to just stop right there with me. Because in the first nine verses of this chapter, we see the accusations leveled against Paul by the Jewish leaders. And Paul was brought up on three specific charges here in the text. Paul first was brought up on what we call sedition. He, he was in what they said he was in violation to the Roman law. Paul was also being charged with sectarianism, which is a violation of the Jewish law. And then he was, in, in, he was also being charged with what we call sacrilege, which is violation of God's law. And in effect, these, these Jewish leaders are telling, Paul, are telling the, the governor that Paul is a rebel rouser that he's a ringleader, that he's the one who ruins the temple. I mean, these are serious accusations. One of the three would amount to death, and he's being accused of all three. Now, I want you to see in verse number 10 what happens. And when the governor had nodded to speak to him, Paul then begins to reply. He says, I cheerfully make my defense. Sorry, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Have you ever been in that situation before? Where you have an opportunity to dispel lies or arguments against you and you're cheerful about it? 
And you're like smiling. You're like, yeah, I can't wait to share my side. Yeah, let's do that, right? Anybody ever been there? Paul's like, I'm cheerful to tell you what's going on. In verse 11, you can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd either in the temple or in the synagogue or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, and by the way, Paul calls Christianity the way. So if you hear him use the term the way, he's speaking about following God. Now, now, according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains, and if you have a physical Bible, I recommend you underline verse 16. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. And while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation. Should they have everything against me? Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this, one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, let, let Lysisius, uh, the tribune, come down, and I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. Now, I know there was a lot in that big chunk there, but Paul's whole entire life had been radically transformed and he is now giving a testimony to Felix, the governor. Church, Christian in here, Paul is on trial for his life for what he believes He's on trial for his life because he's following Jesus. And so the first thing I want us to note here in the text is that belief in the gospel should impact our living and our giving. It should impact our living and our giving. I want you to go back and reread verses 16 and 17 with me. He said, So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. When you and I re-examine verses 16 and 17, those two verses show us two specific statements that every Christian should, should see that stick out to them. Paul said that my conscience is clear. That was the first thing that he said. My conscience is clear. And the second thing, he said, I arrive with monetary offering or a gift of money for the church. Paul intended in every way, not just to have a clear conscience, but he intended to contribute to the welfare of the church and to support the community in which the church was in. Now, I want you to, to pause for just a moment because I want us to consider the situation. Everything that's going on here. I want us to just take a, a moment to think about it. Paul 
is on trial for his life in front of a governor who knows this man is a prisoner and he can do anything that he wants to Paul. And yet, this governor Felix, he's sitting there and he acknowledges at the end of verse 22, he acknowledged that that there was something authentic about Paul's words. There was something brewing inside of Felix His conscience was completely troubled by what was going on. A sentiment that will really extend to his wife, Drusilla. And we're going to address that in just a moment. And the questions begin to arise. Why on earth is this prisoner persistent on aiding the people who in the very last chapter sought to kill him? Why is he here to help them? Why does he want to give them money? Oh, why would you return after months and months and months just to give them money? What in the world is going on? And Paul's testimony begins to elucidate for us the very mysteries to the extent that Felix postpones his execution. He says, we're going to wait. Church, when an individual starts to reveal Their God-changed inner self, it captivates the attention of people. It captivates the attention of people. Why? Because people are always grappling with their conscience for various reasons. Always. And the crucial point for you and I to not miss so far in the text is that if you and I claim to be one thing internally and we live differently externally, then a conflict will ensue inside of you and it will send perplexing signals to every person who witnesses the way that you live. And so you note takers in here this morning, I want you to write this down. It is almost impossible to try and share the gospel and be a generous giver if what you claim to believe isn't all that real to you. It'll be difficult. It'll be very, very difficult And while you're writing that down, I want you to think about this question. Do you believe that the early church dedicated a specific month to emphasize missions? Do you think they did? Do you think the early church needed some elaborate financial giving campaign with clever strategies to raise funds for projects? Do you you think the early church conducted special classes and special courses and, and lessons on how to present the gospel to people? No. I mean, the answer is no to all of those questions. But as we reflect upon those questions, it should lead every believer to a realization that the early church was marked by simplicity, yet they had fervor in everything that they did. Not one time did the early church compartmentalize missions into a four-week period and then forget about it for the next 11 months. Never. Do we see in Scripture that the early church's financial giving was was propelled by sophisticated campaigns? It was propelled because they had a genuine passion for the things of God. That's why they gave. I mean, every move that we have seen thus far in the book of Acts tells us that the early church was just outpouring authentic faith. And, And these aspects 
they, they highlight a, a different paradigm, really, from, from contemporary methodologies. And, and it urges us to ponder how you and I live the Christian life today. It, it really does. And before, um, before you hear something that I'm not saying, it, it is important for me to clarify to you this morning, none of the practices that I mentioned a moment ago, the holding classes to teach people how to share the gospel, and none of those things are inherently evil, okay? And all God's people said amen, amen. right? None of those things are inherently evil, but you and I have to acknowledge the fact that the early church and the early Christians grappled with challenges. They had issues at every turn. And we see evidence of all of those issues and problems. Go back and read First and Second Corinthians. Go and read Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians. All of the early churches had issues and problems that had to be addressed. But the prevailing and the consistent narrative that we see in Scripture is that the early church was passionate and bold and generous and grace-filled at every turn. Church, that the power of the gospel, the very power of the gospel, had such a profound impact on their lives that it not only influenced the way that they lived, but it shaped how they gave to people. How they gave. And that reflection prompts you and I to examine how we live and how we give. Every one of us. Because has the gospel so impacted your life that how you live and how you give has been radically transformed and continues to change? What if, what if I was to stand here and say, what does your conscience look like this morning? How many of you would like to grab the microphone and tell us? Not many, right? What does your conscience look like this morning? Because th this sermon really doesn't, I mean, it's already 10 after 11. This sermon doesn't allow for me to put some exhaustive exploration together on the subject of our conscience. We would be here for weeks. But the mention of it in the text, it warrants that you and I have some foundational insight about what the Bible says of our conscience. Did you know that throughout the Bible, there are 30 different references to our conscience? And that faculty is a gift that was bestowed upon every single one of us, even though, even though witnessing the wicked acts of some might make us question if the conscience truly does exist. But the conscience is, serves as an internal guide and it is a manifestation of what we perceive as right and wrong. And it's, and it's important for you and I to recognize, I'm not singling anybody out here, but it's important for you and I to recognize that our personal convictions about right and wrong do not always align with objective moral truth. They don't. And that disparity, because they do not always align with objective moral truth, it underscores the reasoning of why you and I have to turn to the word of God. 
It underscores in the word of God for you and I, it is a timeless and unerring source. Amen? I mean, it is there to align our conscience with eternal truth. And so I want to give you quickly, I want to give you four insights into your conscience. Four insights. The first is that our conscience must be cleansed. Our conscience must be cleansed. This happens at salvation. This is the salvation change. I want you to look at the verse on the screen. The writer of Hebrews says, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God? And it says that he purged your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Meaning the sacrifice of Jesus holds the extraordinary power to restore even your damaged conscience. Restore it completely. Through his death, through his burial, through his resurrection, every believer experiences a profound cleansing where the entirety of their being, including their conscience, is renewed. It's renewed The redemptive work of Christ, church, is not only about your individual salvation, but it's about equipping and empowering you to live purposefully and devotedly in service to not just your creator, but to your savior. And so your conscience must be cleansed. The second thing is that your conscience must be calibrated. Sorry, I had an acute attack of alliteration this morning. Uh, when getting to this. But Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit and writing to the church at Rome, he said it best when he said in Romans chapter 12, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Calibrating your conscience happens through a deeper understanding of the Scripture and submission to the Holy Spirit. And I'm I'm talking about more than just a surface level comprehension. Calibrating your conscience involves you and I digging into the layers of Scripture. It involves you and I studying the applications that we find. Because through that understanding of study and reflection and and guidance from godly, knowledgeable sources, our conscience can be calibrated. And when, when those truths are laid upon you and you willingly yield and surrender to the influence and the guidance and transformation that's brought about by the Holy Spirit, your conscience is then recalibrated every time. And it's so important that you and I do this not just once a week here on Sunday. Because this is not enough. This, this hour and 15 minute that we are here together is not enough to keep you calibrated. You need to spend time with Jesus, church. Every day, take a few moments. Don't, don't let the busyness of your schedule, 
Don't let your marriage, don't let your kids or your grandkids get in the way of your relationship with Jesus because you need him. You need him. And so our conscience needs to be cleansed and it needs to be calibrated, which leads me to our third and is that you need to keep your conscience clear. Paul said this in the text, my conscience is clear. And so you may be sitting in here this morning and you may be saying or asking yourself, how do I even do that? How do I keep my conscience clear? Well, one of my favorite verses um, comes out of um, the book of 1 John. And it's a verse that you and I all know, or at least you've probably heard in church. 1 John 1, nine. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. I mean, the very depth of God's faithfulness is evident in his abundant forgiveness in your life. He wipes away every wrongdoing and completely removes the traces of unforgiveness in your life. I mean, how amazing is that? That is, that is what I would call amazing grace. God's unwarranted forgiveness. We don't deserve it, but he says if we confess, he gives it to us. He gives it to us. But I want to just point something out. I just want to point, to confess means to align our words with truth. That's what that means. To align our words with truth. So when you and I confess, we are expressing our willingness to acknowledge and believe the same evaluation of our wrongdoing as God does. You're saying, God, I believe what you believe about my sin. I mean, Jesus even illustrated that concept in the gospel of Luke when there's a story about this religious man and this sinner praying to God. And if you know it, it's in Luke 18, the Pharisee, in that story, he boasts about how righteous he truly is. And on the other side, the sinner just simply says, God, be merciful to me because I'm a sinner. God, just be merciful to me. I mean, the one who confessed his sin was the one who agreed with God about the severity of his actions. And so you may be sitting in here this morning saying, why do we need to know this? Because the, the synergy of genuine confession along with the act of forgiveness, it crafts a very beautiful picture of spiritual rejuvenation. Could you go back to that verse for just a moment? I don't want you to miss this this morning. John specifically said, if you confess your sin, what is the response? He's faithful and just to forgive it. But there was an action that had to occur first. Confession. And I'm not talking about you going into a small box with a man on the other side of that box and you have to tell him all of, but he says, if you confess your sins. He, he's talking about you and in, not just in your relationship with the Lord saying, God, I have wronged you. I've hurt, I've offended you in this way. Please forgive me because I don't want my relationship broken with you. But sometimes that confession means getting somebody else involved in that confession. Going to, and I'm going to say this, and I mean this with all the love and the respect in the world, going to a godly, knowledgeable source. Saying, 
I need help because I'm struggling. I need help because this is a problem or an issue in my life and I don't want to live this way anymore. And I'm going to take it even a step further. Every single one of us needs to have that person in our lives. Every one of us. I don't care if you're 15 or 150. Every single one of us needs that person in our life that not only holds us accountable, but says, hey, did you, did you do this this week? Did you fail at this this week? How's this going? What's your marriage look like? They ask you the hard questions, even if it offends you. They ask you the hard questions. Why? Because they care about your soul. Because they care about your soul. And so, yes, we need our conscience cleansed. And we need it calibrated. And our conscience needs to be clear, which leads me to the last insight that I want to give you today. And it's this, that you can have a calloused conscience. You can have a calloused conscience. Do you know that Paul addressed that very thought of having a calloused conscience when he was speaking to the young church leader, Timothy? You may know these verses. It's 1 Timothy 4, and it says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times... Some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are what? Seared. They're seared. How many of you in here, if I were to ask you what that means, you would be able to give me a definition of what he's talking about? Okay, not many. That's great because I was going to explain what he meant. To have a seared conscience pertains to the persistent, intentional, and obstinate commitment to sin. It's talking about the individual who resists and rejects the Holy Spirit. And when that happens, and I'm telling you, this is the scariest place to find yourself. When that happens... You are led to a numbness in your soul that renders you cold and indifferent, apathetic to the things of God. And every single one of those insights to our conscience are exactly what Paul is dealing with here in the text with Felix. After having shared his testimony with the governor, I want you to look at verse 22 real quick with me. I want you to hear the governor's reply. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off. He said, when Lysisius, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Felix delayed. He postponed Paul's testimony by pushing it aside but his testimony is affecting this procrastinator. And I want you to notice in verse 24 what happens. And after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. And he sent for Paul. And I want you to hear this. And he heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control in the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed. Do not Overlook that. Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. And at that same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. 
So he sent for him often and conversed with him. And when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, terrible name, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. It says that Paul reasoned with Drusilla and Felix. I mean, Scripture says that you and I should be ready to give an answer when asked about the hope that we have inside of us. And at this time, when most people's lives would be falling apart, Paul is sharing his faith and he's giving monetarily of the things that he has. I mean, what we see is Paul discussing and thinking out and talking through and pondering. He, he's resolving in the mind what is true. You know, you and I don't know everything that they discussed we don't know every word, every sentence that they said in this meeting. But scripture tells us that there were three topics that Paul addressed in his gospel presentation. Three. Righteousness was the first one that it said that he addressed. And they're not going to hit the screen for you. Righteousness. Meaning that Paul discussed the very standard of God's holiness and how it's been fulfilled through Christ. I mean, Felix and Drusilla were wicked people. And in studying Felix's life, you will quickly realize that he was probably one of the most awful people outside of Nero in that day and age. If you really want to dig into it, I would encourage you, for, not, for the, not for the faint at heart, but I would encourage those who uh, could handle it to look up what Felix did. Most biblical historians tell us that Felix stole Drusilla. He stole her when she was an 18 to 20 year old girl to traffic her. That's why he took her. He kidnapped her and he seduced her and persuaded her to follow along with all of his actions. And if you want to know about Drusilla's life, she was no better. Drusilla was a family member of the ruler that beheaded John the Baptist. And not just that, she was also cousins with Pilate who sealed the fate of Jesus, both of who knew the way in which Paul spoke and through their conscience, they both wanted to hear more. And yet Paul spoke, what became clear to them was conviction and they turned it away. They pushed it aside, both of them. He spoke of righteousness, but he spoke of self-control, a trait that neither one of them had. They were both known for being prideful, over-the-top, perverted individuals that lived according to only their standard. Just theirs. And the truth about self-control this morning is that you never really have it until the Spirit is in control of your life. And the reason that Paul covered not just righteousness and self-control, but he covered the final topic of judgment and that's because when we reject righteousness and self-control, judgment is the result. That's what happens. I mean, it's, it's ironic. Maybe you didn't even notice this, but for me, it's ironic that here is a ruler who can condemn Paul to death and Paul's talking to him about the judgment that's coming for him. It's a total role reversal. I mean, through the proclamation of the gospel, there is a warning that there is coming a day when Felix and Drusilla will stand on trial for their lives. 
And did you notice in the text that it said that Felix was alarmed? He was alarmed. Meant that he was full of fear or that he was terrified. I mean, Paul was so passionate. He was so pointed because the terror Felix was feeling was nothing compared to the terror that was awaiting him if he did not repent. Church, as, as we begin to kind of land the plane here, I just I want to say something to you. Felix showed emotion, but that was not enough. Emotion was not enough. Shedding tears. I mean, showing concern for our sin is not the same as repentance and change. It's not. And I want to take this even a step further because we're, we're seeing something in our culture today that is so, so scary and terrifying as a pastor. So many churches in our culture are toying with the emotionalism game. They're toying with it. They're creating false converts on the premise that if you had a quote-unquote spiritual experience, then you're going to heaven. And that's not true. That's the farthest thing from the truth. Felix and Drusilla were faced with a choice, repent or refuse. And as one commentator said, Felix and Drusilla procrastinated their way into hell. They refused it. They completely refused it. And church, I would even go as far as to say that hell is filled with procrastinators. All of them procrastinated. They refused to follow after the things of God. And so church, Christian this morning, follower of Jesus Christ, our job is to proclaim the gospel. And the Spirit's job is to convict through that truth. It's the Spirit's job to cleanse through that truth. It is the Spirit's job to comfort us with that truth and change us so that we can then in turn keep representing the truth. Paul was a prisoner, but Paul was way more free than Felix was. And like Paul, the believer sitting in this room, we were all once prisoners. All of us. We were captives of our sin. And we've been set free because of Jesus Christ. Paul demonstrated for us how a freed prisoner lives. And he tells other people of how they can be free too. How many of you in here know John 8, 32? And the truth shall, if you know the truth, the truth shall what? Set you free. So let me ask you a question. Do you know a Felix or a Drusilla? Do you know people who are procrastinating? 
Because church, this, this whole emphasis uh, of the shift in our name from the well church to mission life church and, and having a new vision statement and a new mission statement is because the mission is unfinished. The mission is unfinished. There are still people in our communities that are procrastinating. There are people that, that we need to continue to engage with and proclaim the gospel to. Which then leads me to ask you this question. Do you believe that our king is coming soon? Do you believe it? And if you do believe it, how is that affecting your living and your giving? How is that affecting your living and your giving? Is this your story? I love, I love that song, this is my story, this is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. Is this your story? Is, is Christ your song? Are you praising him all the day long? Are we? Because of the return of Christ will be a wonderful, soul-thrilling day for the freed prisoner. But it's going to be a horrible moment for the fence-dwelling procrastinator. A horrible moment. And so if you're in here this morning, I'm going to ask you to close your eyes for a moment. Have you been set free? Have you been set free today? Are you procrastinating? I mean, you may be in here this morning and you have no relationship with the Lord. And you're saying, I, I want to be free. I've heard the truth and, and you said that truth can make me free. I want to be free. How do I do that? Cry out to God. Right here in this moment is an opportunity to cry out to God to say, Lord, I, I don't want to live this way anymore. I want to be rescued and, and saved. I want to be one of your children. I want to be on mission. I want to be a part of the movement. There's no, no specific words. I'm not going to hand you an index card with say these three lines and you're going to heaven. No, you cry out to God and say, Lord, I'm a sinner and I need to be saved. Please save me. I believe in, in your life, your death, your burial, your resurrection. I believe it in my heart. And the Bible says that if we believe in our heart and we confess with our mouth, we shall be saved. And so you have an opportunity right now to do it. And maybe you're in here and you're saying, Pastor, I know I'm a Christian. Well, then I need you to answer this question. Are you engaged? Are you involved in the movement? Are you a part of the mission? And if your answer is, I think I need to realign, then guess what? Today is the perfect opportunity for you to recalibrate. It's a moment for you to say, Lord, please, please cleanse my conscience. Please calibrate it. I want to have a clear conscience so that it doesn't become calloused. If you're in here this morning, if you've cried out to God because you wanted a relationship with Him, you wanted to be rescued and saved this morning, 
Would you be so willing as to look right up here at me? Just make eye contact with me. Make eye contact with me if you've cried out for salvation. I want to rejoice with you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Christian in here this morning. How many of you in here would be willing to raise your hand and say, hey, I think I've been procrastinating in what God has called me to do and I'm asking you to pray for me because I don't want to live that way. Mm. Hands all over the room. Thank you. If you're in here and you're saying, God, I feel like my relationship with God is is going well, then I'm going to challenge you to do this. I want you to find somebody in this room that you can partner with. There's a term that we used to use with our youth group. Everyone needs a foxhole friend, a foxhole buddy, someone that you can go to war with. So find that person. Let us pray. God, we come to you this morning and we thank you so much and and rejoice with those four individuals that made professions of faith by looking up here this morning saying, I want to be saved. I cried out to God. And so, Lord, we just thank you that we get to be a part of that. And as we reflect on this morning, I'm reminded uh, that the mission of the church is unfinished. And so, God, it's not just about impressive buildings and and perfect budgets, but instead it's a call for you uh, that you've placed upon us to intentionally engage with our culture, proclaiming your truth. And so in this moment of prayer, Lord, I just want to take a moment to lift up our community, not just here in Ionia, but Saranac and Lowell and Fenwick and Orleans and Belding, wherever it is that we are represented, Lord, I lift up our community and I lift up the the launch of Mission Life Church in, in less than three months. And we pray that we will be more than just attendees. I pray that that we would be active contributors to the movement of your church. Lord, help us to be to not be confined by activities, but that we would be authentically a part uh, of the mission. Give us the, the courage to answer the hard questions. And Lord, I would ask that you would give us the strength to be doers of your word and not just hearers only. We pray for the, the people who may be procrastinating like Felix or delaying their decision to follow you. We pray that the testimony of our lives captivates their attention and it brings them face to face with you and your word. And lastly, God, I just ask that you would cleanse our conscience. I ask that you would calibrate it according to your word and that you would keep it clear. And Lord, I ask above these things that you would guard our hearts against offense and unforgiveness and selfishness, the bitterness that leads to being calloused. Give us the discernment, God, to to know and to share the truth with passion and urgency. Oh, and as we wait, God, eagerly waiting for your return, 
I pray that our lives would, would be but praise and proclamation every step of the way. Give us divine encounters and interactions as we go uh, from here. And I just ask and pray these things now in, in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen and amen.